Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. We specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people and the best spots, all ahead of time, because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch and get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. Today's podcast is it's a little bit different. It's basically a, a piggyback, if you like, in the fact that the podcast was initiated by Ryan Stag O'Connor, who has the Stag Raw podcast here in New Zealand. And and basically, Ryan wanted to catch up with me a year after he caught up with Matthew, the other half of the Educated Hunter and Ultimate OE. Pretty cool chat. Um, it was definitely different for me to be on the other side. Uh, definitely took some learnings out of that. Some of the stuff Ryan did and the way we, we chatted, uh, a little bit of learning there for me. So, so I appreciate that opportunity. Thank you, Ryan. And then I guess... The reason we've decided to play it, and it is only a few days after Ryan shared it on his uh, podcast, The Stag Raw, like I mentioned, is I think it's a really good way for our listeners to probably, I guess, gain a bit of picture as to the way I am in particular, but um, also going back to Matthew's one a year ago, just a good way for our listeners to, I guess, gain a little bit more understanding as to what, what it is we think and do. I know we talk a lot in our podcast, but... Very rarely are the questions coming back at us. So, uh, yeah, enjoy it. It was fun. So is that the office, the garage? Yeah, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking good. The man cave. Yeah. Other, other than when I share it with my wife and she tidies it all and cleans everything up. <laughs> you're, on, you're on to a winner. Is that, is that the latest, um, what's that, mountain goat? goat? Is that what uh, it is? No, that's an old, well, that's an older one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't get anything in Canada this last year. Uh, it was a dry trip for me. So you were trying to get stone sheep, is that right? Yeah, stone. I was going. I had a stone sheep and caribou and moose tag, but stone sheep was the primary reason on what I was doing. Yeah, right. We'll talk about that because yeah, I've got questions. Yeah, good, good. That's, that's good. Fire at me. Right, I'll hit record. This is awesome. Cool. Exactly one year. Exactly one year on. We've got the other half of the Educated Hunter, the other half of Ultimate OE, Curran Island on. Um, 
you've got uh, big big shoes to fill, Kieran, because after that episode, Matt went to a storming lead, and he's the uh, most listened to episode from last year. Oh, really? Um, yeah, although Gwyn, Gwyn Thurlow was hot on his tails in October, so I don't know if he could class as the most successful episode of the year, but he, um, he's up to third place on, on my stats, but given your guys' um, topics, niche, and some of the guests, mate, um, I doubt my um, shared podcast features quite so highly on, you, on your ranks. What was the motivation behind getting um, Educated Hunter started now that you're a you know, a year and a bit on, and and what's it been like to have such an awesome product? Uh, yeah, well, big question, man. Um, I guess the Educated Honda for us was about partly sharing what it is we do know from what we've done overseas. Um, so it, was, it gave us a format to do that, but more importantly, it was really about trying to educate New Zealand hunters that Whilst we sort of live in a bit of a utopia for hunting, we have failed to grasp the necessity to do some things well as hunters to keep it that way or, or keep a version of. Um, so I guess we were just trying to educate, and it's sort of, I guess it's, it's only a flow on from the ultimate OE, which, uh, you know, there's the other side of what we do, and that its whole origination in our business as a whole. Um, was really about just bettering the New Zealand hunter. And I don't mean that distastefully in the fact that the New Zealand hunters aren't great at what they do, but there's a lot of learning from what happens elsewhere around the world that we are quite isolated from. And it would have been good if something was happening in that form. So that's why we started Ultimate OE, to get people over there and experiencing it firsthand and bringing back their version of that knowledge. And then the Educated Hunter was about a formal version from us and people that we knew that had shared different avenues of that. So it's a pretty big-winded directive what we're trying to achieve, but it was kind of, I guess, our way of trying to, like I say, better hunting and hunters within New Zealand by actioning something, not just talking about it. Awesome. By talking about it. Yeah, well, yeah, by talking about it. Exactly, there you go. Um, so, yeah, that, that's probably where it started. And um, like you touched on, we've had some, uh, you know, good guests, I guess, if you like. But um, we've got some really cool ones coming up. Um, but I think it was more, I think once you sort of branch into it, and I'm pretty sure you'll be finding it too, within whatever set demographic you sit within, everybody's wanting something better for that demographic and they sort of, it gets pretty easy to drum up a bit of support and people want to, to share their versions and stuff. Absolutely, mate. <clears throat> You're speaking about, you know, for the betterment of the New Zealand hunter, not that New Zealand hunters are bad. I was, I was listening to one of the uh, social media legends of hunting, Ruby Warren today. He's talking about still hunting and he was referencing New Zealand and the guys he's hunting with over here. So you're, you're yeah. right. There's plenty of guys out there in New Zealand that don't even know what they're doing. And I was having a oh. chat with the president of Deer Stalkers um, the other day, and he was talking about um, those who are on the, what is it, shoot, shooting and hunting, hunting and shooting forum or whatever, mm -hmm. Nimrod. He's a mm -hmm. member of our club, and he said, mate, you've got to talk to him. That guy's an absolute killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we, um, you know, we as a nation, I guess, um, 
we we do lead lead the way in out and out hunt. Um, I guess I don't know. There's a few different things that I sort of um, personally um, sort of think we need to worry about in the way we word things. But in terms of guys that get out there and get after it, get on the hill, hours on the hill. Um, you know, we're 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 amongst the, the best, and and partly because we don't have any restrictive as to what we do. You know, the very thing that I probably try and uh, push or at least educate on the fact we maybe need some changes around is probably the very thing that keeps us at the forefront of hunting. So it's sort of a double-edged sword, if you like. Yeah, and, and you touched on sort of coming from overseas stuff. We've had a bloke from Scotland come over here, and, and anybody that interacts with expat people from the UK would say the reason they came here is they thought New Zealand was 20 years behind the UK and, mm-hmm. and so they were quite happy with how things were 20 years ago in the yeah. UK so they wanted to come, come over here and keep living it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and <clears throat> I guess that's sort of where Canada's caught in between. They've got this fantastic conversation, uh, conservation model across the border but they're also, uh, you know, a, a descendant of the Commonwealth and they're sort of mixed up in those sort of influences as well. Do you think there's... Yeah. Canada fits somewhere between Scotland and New Zealand. Um, they might sure. be ten years, ten years behind the UK. Um, <laughs> no, see, I think it's it's almost um, I uh, far out. I've never, or I probably put some time into it actually, based on what it is I do. But um, I sort of see them as actually very different models. I see. The likes of the UK, in particular Scotland, like the way they hunt and the things they do is still very tradition-based and it's handed down through generations. And there's the unfortunate reality over there is the the percentage of new hunters, like completely new hunters, is very minimal. So therefore, hunting's in a dire strait over there. So where, where the families pass down tradition, they keep an amazing ethic, standard, um, skill set, very specific to what they do. And then when I look at the Canadian model, I feel like due to the duration of it, there's a, there's a portion of that, but a majority of their restrictive and their conservation and their uh, direction as hunters is essentially forced by law. Mm. So there's, there's two different theories in that, like perhaps without the law – they would be a lot less ethical per term, whereas in Scotland, I feel like they'd keep their ethics if the law changed or not. Like, it's just ingrained in them. Um, now, you know, that's big speaking from my high horse. I'm not, you know, not um, bracketing everybody in the same boat there, but I think there's there's learnings from, you know, both as to what a direction in which we could head New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... While we're talking about those two models, what do you think the restriction is for hunters in the UK versus the restriction for hunters in Canada, or is it even restricted? What do you what, what do you refer to as restriction? Like the, well, barriers to entry, things things that you know would keep keep someone in the city. Um, it's just the when I look at the them. UK because I I talk to um, obviously I talk to a lot of states, um, but I also talk to a lot of their training facilities around their professional hunters or the gillies and, and beat stalkers and so forth. So there is a huge 
demise and numbers even attending their training. So where they've got real issues is getting the next or the new generations into hunting. And I think it just stems, without sounding like a broken record, the urbanisation of communities and the, the strength the strength and the desire of the anti-hunters as a really broad term, but just those that can persuade into other avenues other than hunting are a lot better at what they do than we as hunters do to try and bring people together. So I think that's where... Canada, where are they going? Um, their biggest restriction, and I guess where we fit in there with Ultimate OE, is... Again, they face a little bit of that, but more so the same sort of guy or girl that traditionally took on a wrangling role than a guiding role is very manual and outdoor labour-focused type person, um, and that's changing. And then the few that are still there, because they still obviously have generations of that type of family... Uh, they can just go into oil and gas and earn three, four, five times the amount, work shorter periods. Um, you know, like they sort of, they don't don't need to worry about God anymore. Like um, where it used to be a career path, um, there's a little bit of stigma around, and I'm not certainly not one of these guys that bangs on about millennials, but there's a little bit of stigma about the younger generation being okay as wranglers for two or three years and learning the ropes before they become guides um, versus, I guess, some sort of official training progress in, in the oil and gas industry and they can become, per, def, per I guess, like, however their ranks work over there, they can become higher qualified and earn more, you know, on a set plan versus guiding is sort of a little bit at the whim of your employer. Yeah. It's not a formal process. You're just good enough when you're good enough. And um, yeah. you, you, you brought up that uh, word millennial, and I think I'm on the uh, outer edge of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, if, you, if you've listened to any of my episodes, I always start with what you did on the weekend, and, mm-hmm. and you you did one of those things that you, you speak about often. Is maybe we're going to lose in this country, but you know it's not going to be on your books by the sounds of things. What what do you reckon um, the importance of camping is, mate? Because I, I grew up. On the, on the shores of Lake Wanaki every single year and absolutely yeah. loved it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I actually had this discussion today with my cousin, thankfully, probably for a bit of background material on me because my daughter's my daughter's 20, well, she's two in May. Okay, I don't get on with the people that count the days specifically. She's two in May. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's already collectively done a dozen camping trips where we camp for multiple days um, and she sort of just has to deal with the fact that it's cold or colder and and there's less variation what she can and can't eat and so forth but I think I think the 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 outdoors brings a necessity to admire it and I think I think like I'm not educated enough in that specific area to to tell you how much value you get of just slowing down and looking at the way nature is and all that sort of aspect. But when you're put in it and there's no variation to that or no other alternative, like so for my daughter, she's going to need to just appreciate it. And what I do know about being a parent is 
while she's this young, she's soaking up whatever it is I can give her. So right now, she loves the stones, loves the water, loves the trees, loves whatever it is else that I'm giving her. And I just think, I, I know that when she starts schooling, there's going to be other elements of her life that I as a parent or as a guardian, leader, what have you, need to give her around technology, around planning, around um, you know ensuring she knuckles down when she needs to knuckle down, probably sport, but I'm going to remove the ability just for her to stop and look. Like that's not, I'm not going to have such power over that. So I think it's really important to get them into it young. Um, I did it with my dad. And when I look back now, um, and, and obviously now that I'm an adult, my father's an adult, and we talk about real life stuff, not just shooting rabbits, um, <laughs> I appreciate that a lot of the stuff he did in that form was much like what I'm doing it for my daughter now. He wasn't a, a, a passionate hunter. wasn't He didn't live or breathe it. He, he grew up doing it with his father, and then he saw it as his way of showing me the outdoors. So that's why we did it. So we camped and hunted and fished. Um, I just, I just, yeah, I think I probably jumped off the topic a little bit there, but I, I just think it's a really important aspect. I think a, 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 at a young age when you were put in it, it, it helps with creativity. Um, and I think creativity is one of the diminishing skill sets. Uh, in terms of genuine creativity, like probably at that point it's almost imagination. But, um, you know, from the bits I've seen, and again, I'm not an expert, but the bits I've seen in terms of the youth that I've had come through Ottoman OE now for the last 10 years, um, I would say based on that small demographic, imagination and creativity is something that has been on the decline. Mm. Mm. Um. You just brought to mind an article that Matt Heath, of all people, wrote. And that was about his old man taking him to work and basically just sit there in the corner and um, think of what to do. I'm doing work. Mm-hmm. And, um, I myself, my old man was a teacher. So you know, there's the illusion that teachers have all these holidays, but <laughs> actually it's they, they, go, they go to school and, and do marking or, yeah. or uh, le- lesson planning or whatever it is. And so it was basically go with him. And he gave us the keys to the gym, and it's kind of like entertain yourselves. And yeah. then you, yeah, but you, you speak to camping, and it's kind of like, man, shit, I was bored. And I used to just <laughs> ride around, and like you say, throw stones, yeah, uh, swim, try try fish. No, it did not didn't really be any good at that. But <laughs> yeah, like, like you said, being bored stems stems a lot of creativity. And mm-hmm. and um, I always think of like there's there was two options um, growing up. You know, of course, you could have watched the TV, but um, that wasn't you weren't allowed that option. It was do some chores or, or figure out what you're going to do to stop being bored. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still. I, I don't know if I'm holding on to the old old way of type. Like we're not allowed TV in my house. <laughs> like we have a TV, but um, between me and my wife, we're too busy to actually watch any TV. And my daughter, she's basically got to find her own thing to do. So, which is a little bit tough on her. And we did learn it was a hard lesson. For ourselves, we went on holiday last year and we put her on a plane and it was a pain in the ass because I just wished that she'd watch TV, but she had no interest in it. So, <laughs> so I had to keep her entertained for the entire flight. So, perhaps there's a lesson in that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with that. A couple of trips back and forth from Australia. Yeah. Um, mate, you, you spoke about the, the purpose of Ultimate OE. What was mm-hmm. the, the real pain that 
got you and Matt to go, you know what, we're going to do this for this for this country for ourselves? Or was it you just saw such an opportunity? Um, no, I definitely would have said we saw an opportunity, like in terms of, um, like basically we didn't really know how it was going to happen. Like, so we didn't fall across, like I said, a deliberate opportunity on how this would work. We, I actually worked with Matt's sister. And so how we come about becoming business. So a bit of background there. We started our business and we'd never actually physically met and we weren't friends. So there you go. Um, but so I worked with Matt's sister in Canada and I guess in passing, I'd obviously spoke to her in, in part of Curran's purpose and what he wanted to do for hunting in his young. And Matthew had obviously done the same. So more credit probably goes to, to Matthew's sister than Matthew and myself because she was like, you two, and wording what she said, is that you two dickheads need to actually talk to you because you're saying the same thing. So <laughs> uh, I think we met briefly, briefly fairly intoxicated in, in Vegas uh, or maybe Reno at one of the um, Golden Moose Awards, which is the um, hunting television show awards type of thing. And that there was no content shared then. And then basically we just got in touch and he knew some Canadian outfitters that I'd worked for and I did some background checks on his character before we committed to anything. And then um, basically we got it started. And um, I think in our first year we did 13 people. Um, so we certainly didn't hit the dizzying heights of making any money. But... Um, we sort of, I guess, pegged away at it and got it to the point now where, um, like, it's it's going pretty good, really. Um, yeah, like, we're certainly achieving that, the underlying goal of what we want to do. Like, when we see the, the guys and girls come back, um, just the way they hunt, the way they talk about hunting, the way they share hunting with their friends, and that's that's probably the cool, the cool aspect of it is, like, because we've seen uh, like three or just over 350 to Canada now, and um, each one of them's got three or four half dozen tight hunting buddies. So, essentially, in every hunting region of New Zealand, there's somebody that's done ultimate OE or pretty close to, and then that little group of hunters sort of picks up on their now learnt skill set or theories and. and you know, like I'm definitely not putting my hand up or, or Ottoman's always hand up as to an instigator of it. But there's certainly, when I look at the, when I look at physically the people that we've seen, the change in their, when they were youth and just killing stuff to then a bit more photography, quality of trophy, the amount of photos and shared hunting experiences with new to hunters or, or less skillful hunters. Like it's, there's a big change in all their private, I guess social media accounts for me to see that sort of stuff, you know. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then in terms of the other end of it, like for our outfitters in Canada um, and the States and Scotland, um, yeah, they just they can't get enough really. Um, so we're sort of helping both. So uh, that's pretty good, you know. Nice. Yeah. You mentioned that word social media, which – you always have a sort of uh, love hate relationship come across. I've got a massive love hate relationship with it. <laughs> um, I'm going to speak to one of 
the love parts about it, and okay. I'm sure it's turned into a hate because because Facebook's a nightmare. But mm-hmm. um, and I brought this topic up with with Paul Michaels, who came along two or three years after you guys, mm-hmm. and. I was in my final year of uni, and sure enough, this awesome overseas experience guiding in Canada came up on my Facebook all the time. How how important do you think the timing of, of that launch and, and that tool in its infancy was? <laughs> um, yeah, like it was, it was, it was an amazing tool, and still is an amazing tool. Um, and, and we do we do majority of uh, interaction on social media. Uh, we don't do it well based on my love-hate relationship with it. Um, like, I still do shows. I still visit some schools, um, you know, and a few club meetings and so forth. But I would probably confidently say 80% is done social media now. Um, and Facebook being the bulk of that. Um, Instagram's good for us, but it's definitely not our leader yet. Um, and again, that's... I know that it's, and I know Matthew's listening to this every shake his head. Like it's largely due to my passion for Instagram, but um, it, it, it is an important, yeah, yeah, it is an important tool for us. Um, you know, when you look at our demographic of eighteen to thirty or thirty-five, um, you know, there's nothing else that really compares to where they're spending their time or where they're looking for opportunity. Should say there's hope for me yet. Yeah. Is that 35 just to go to Canada? Yeah, yeah, 18 to 35, (laughs) Canada. Uh, Yeah, 18 to 30, basically for the UK at the moment. Um, So, yeah, but we've got a, we've got a, um, I don't know, actually, if you've got content you want to keep talking about, we can keep talking about that. But um, we've got another experience starting up next year, um, which won't have a age bracket on it. So. Yeah. There is. Yeah. There is hope for me yet. Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> that missed opportunity post university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real thing, <laughs> you know. Um, I tell you what is shameful, beyond more so than that, is the um, still the amount of young Kiwis, particularly guys, but not only guys, there's certainly some females that are still getting done for DIC. Shit. Yeah, yeah. You can go. Like I. Um, I probably, you know, unfortunately have to say to 10 to a dozen people a year that I can't change that fact. You know, you can't go. And even after, because I think there's a clause that it can get sort of wiped, is, is it still the case? Yeah, basically, if it's after, if it's been five years, it was a, a low threshold that they blew and they've kept a clean record and all that. But, you know, when... When you look at, I guess, traveling post-uni, post-tertiary, post-apprenticeship or whatever, like they, they tend to be pretty small windows. You know, life moves on. Um, and so if the, if the time is not right, they probably go ahead and find a different directive and then don't come back to travel, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. Eh? It's sort of every, every school I go and talk to or whatever, like I always finish with that like. Such a dumb way to lose an opportunity, you know. Like by the, for for the likes of it, what we do, uh, by the time they decide that they really want to have a go and they get to applying, and then it's a guy like me that tells them they can't because they did something dumb two years ago after having too many beers. Like, yeah. it's a dumb way to go. <laughs> yeah, mate, and, and you're in a sort of an area of the country that it's sort of 
a long way to go to get to the pub. Um, mm. Do you think you think it's a bit more prevalent, or, or uh, the pubs? Uh, are no, oh, places and they're closing down. <laughs> it's it's definitely rural sector for sure. Um, definitely rural sector, but I don't. I wouldn't think like Central Targa down here is any more than some of the rural communities in North Island. Um, you know, unfortunately. Uh, and then there's student. You know, like, uh, it's all over. The, it's across the board. You know. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is certainly something that's still happening. It's it's just a disappointing one for me. Yeah. Mm. So, mate, if if someone does, you know, actually go ahead and sign up with you, and yep. like I did. Um, yep. What do they expect from the initial trading camp? I guess it's called, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, basically, I guess to give you a, a ground on it, when you are accepted into the program, you're guaranteed a job. So the the training's not, uh, I guess, a pass or fail situation. It's it's part of the skill set. We do have obviously a clause in the legalities there that if you're really not right, then it's not going to work for either of us. So. But, but typically, you know, we haven't needed to use that. So when we turn up at training, uh, basically, say for Canada, uh, we're, we're looking at not, well, 10 days, 9 days of training. Um, and and it, it's actually a pretty full-on course. Like we've had guys that are already guided in New Zealand or guys that have done, you know, a fair part in that sort of industry. And they're still set back by what it is that we're doing. Um so, to run you through, because I've actually got training starting in two weeks' time here, um, day one's obviously a bit of a meet and a greet and an understanding of the role and, and how it works. And then we start, excuse me, we um, start with pack saddling because they have to learn to pack saddle and, and tie the diamond, you know, because it's how essentially everything's shifted over there. So, we essentially go through the theory and then start the practical, and that's the basis of that is. Essentially, any spare time they've got during the course, they should be practicing that because we'll assist them on that end of the training. Um, so we start that. That sort of wraps up day one. Um, we all we split up, just like school camps, and you know take turns at cooking and cleaning and stuff. Like there's some pretty basic skill set in that that some people are still missing. One and one being able to cook, and two, you know, essentially just being told that that's what you're doing for the night. Um, yeah. Oh. And then second day. Depending on how the annual defrost is going, we do a full day of skinning. So for about 95% of the guys, this is the first time they've done any real trophy skinning. So I they get a, they get an entire skin themselves, um, and we start with some basic fleshing, and then we basically take the head skins off, and then they turn the eyes, ears, nose, lips inside out, take the feet out, uh, essentially get a skin through to when it would be salted because uh, we've got no power in the mountain so it's a necessity for the trophy so so everybody has their own they do it, they're hands on with it it's not just a, a theory lesson where they're supposed to watch that kind of thing because some things have to be done practically, you can't just read a book on how to do it, you've got to get stuck in and, and essentially why we use the goats is they're going to make mistakes and it's better to be done on a goat than somebody's trophy um, and then basically with with that skill set that they've now learned we set up a, a social media group private group post training and we hold them all accountable to going out and doing more and doing more skinning and horse riding whatever the other elements are that we require of them um, and, and the reason that works so well is the guys that are 
strong and skinning. They'll always put a video up of the skinning, obviously, see how, see how it works. So that sort of fuels the guys that are maybe not so confident, you know, or they might be better at horse riding. So it just fuels everybody along. Um, third day, we split up and we're either doing chainsaws or Canadian farms license. So we're the, we're the only provider outside of Canada to give them the farms license. Um, so that's one day, and then we alternate that obviously back and forward. And then, so then we're looking at day five and six, um, and that's either horse riding or um, we start doing some theory units around predator interaction, um, client interaction, our own personalities and egos, uh, understanding differences in communication. And then we, the next day, we're all back together and we do. Um, all the hunt legislation in Canada. Um, we do some basics on trophy judging and, and so forth. And then basically getting towards the end, we start wrapping up with just um, ensuring all the admins in line. So the admin for us is obviously the Canadian basics on social insurance numbers and insurances and bank accounts. Um, we do a videography and photography unit, obviously, uh, more so based on Matthew's background than mine, but uh, and we, we sort of cover off, um, I guess, our own, we call it a social responsibility, but what it is we need to be talking to our loved ones about in terms of our boundaries and what we want to know while we're away and what we're prepared to share and where that sits. Um, and then that sort of comes to the close of the course. So I probably missed a few things there, but uh, it, it's pretty pretty busy. Um but it's pretty good. Um, you know, some guys come with some strengths and, and obvious weaknesses, and that's that's life. So we're there to sort of help them out with a few things, you know. Fantastic. So when they get to Canada, they got to do the hunting part of things or hunting no. licensing part of things? No, no, no. They, they basically be in Vancouver for a couple of days sorting out their admin, and then they go straight to the mountains. Epic. Yeah. And, and what was what's the... Uh, sort of legalities of going to Scotland. <coughs> uh, so, in terms of training courses, or, no, in terms of like property rules and, and firearms. And stuff. Um, so, basically, they're working over there. All our Scottish placements, um, they're working as gillies. So, they're basically assisting what they call the beat stalker. So, it's still a an assistant guide guide relationship, but it's um, like I say, gillie and beat stalker. And so, early in the season, um, they're basically doing the stags. Um, so basically whatever's required in terms of that in terms of helping with the stalks retrieving the animal off the hill then doing some larder work which is the, the butchery aspect of it um, based on all the deer that are harvested go straight into the food chain so they they essentially become a anti-mortem and a post-mortem assessor um, so they do that for two and a half months essentially um, and then post that they start culling so Every estate is basically told, you know, per se that they've got X amount of deer they need to harvest off that land to keep it in perfect balance for all the other flora and fauna within the estate. So, and, and for some that'll be really quite high, for some that'll be quite low. Um, but essentially, like one of our estates, um, the three guys there that I sent there last year, they shot just over 400 hinds and yearlings in two and a half months. So they're doing they're doing a lot, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a little bit like me doing those goats the other day. Like it's good fun 
pulling the trigger without any disrespect, but then it's a big job post that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, they didn't say you chuck them in the freezer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've got all my, well, all my skins. So I skin them all on the hill. Uh, all my goats, that is. I, I do a full body skin on the hill, take the skins out, and I take as much dog tucker as I can. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I think I've got 30 goats in the freezer at the moment, so I certainly don't have that much dog tucker. <laughs> So your dogs are supposed to be chasing pigs, mate. <laughs> oh shit, yeah. No, no, no. They're not allowed on the hill for that. No, <laughs> they're uh, they're kennel bound when I'm doing that sort of that sort of job. I don't. That's one of my that's one of my basic rules. I don't I don't shoot or kill anything else when I got the dogs out. It's pigs yeah. or nothing. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so even if a deer comes by, it's, yeah. Um, no. It's interesting. Come back yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It's uh. It's not what one. It's not what I'm there for. Um. But more, you know, the main reason is I spend so long stock proofing and, and and distraction proofing the dogs that I, it seems counterintuitive for me to then go and show them that I'm doing it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm the leader, so um, that's that's just one of my unwritten rules. Whatever other people do it differently, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned Matt's skill set from from his time working at. Camera work. Yep. Um, it, do you see some people just really latch onto that? And what sort of what sort of value does that bring yep. to the outfitters over there if they've got it? Um, oh, it brings a massive value for them. Uh, so there's two reasons we do it. Well, not there's more than two, but the, the two main reasons we do it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, whether whether they head down a professional route with hunting or or a, you know high level recreational or whatever they head down in terms of hunting. This is still an overseas experience, still a portion of their life that they should be generating memories from. Um, So, you know, for us it's really important that they can learn a little bit and take good quality photos because guys will take just a shit ton of photos, but the reality is most of them are just terrible. And that's life. You know, we now live in a world where we can take lots of photos and get rid of them real quickly. Like, um, So it was important that, that the people were getting the best out of every time they click that camera or turn that video camera on. Um, and then for our outfitters, like a little bit like everybody now playing the social game, like any good photo they can get that, that reps their brand or shows something, you know, that they do in a positive light and quite well, like it's gold. Because these outfitters are all, well, basically they're, they're older generation. But the the reality is when you start running a business, you ain't on the hill anymore and you're not there to gather that content and, and it's a basically content's a necessity in this damn world, you know? Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> what's the guys in uh, Canada that are running these outfit, outfit, outfits? Yeah. Um, is that their property or are they leasing? No. So it's sort of um, their leases. They're a little bit like a mining lease or even a, I guess even a, 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 you know, original farming lease here. Like they have, they lease the land and they basically, it's just on a continual um, lapse over. So they just, it just, it's not something they're ever going to lose through lease, but they, they hold the right to hunt from it. So they, other people can still hunt it, like residents can still hunt it, but nobody else can charge for hunting on it. Essentially, that's yeah. a real briefed down sort of version of it. Yeah, yeah. 
as he mentioned, um, the estates in Scotland having a you know colour certain number so mm-hmm. that the rest of the fauna and fauna can flourish. Yeah. What's their sort? Of, what's their sort of governance? Uh, well, the difficulty they got there is they got predators doing a fair portion for them. Um, yeah. And what what really needs to happen is um, there needs to be more action on the predators. Um, mm-hmm. But you try and push that in downtown Vancouver at the moment. It's not going to go very well for anybody. Um, so the, you know, that's probably where it needs to be more. And they've got great organisations. We've got a um, podcast coming out soon with the presidents of the Guide and Outfitting Association of British Columbia. Um, and they will, they, you know, they they do a lot in terms of habitat um, and in terms of management. But they they're still really struggling with being able to manage um, predators. You know, like. They banned the grizzly bear there a few years ago, and um, the the negative interaction is, is you know percentages are increasing all the time, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not it's not for anybody's benefit, you know. But uh, the unfortunate reality is, when as a hunter you sort of put your hand up and say it's getting bad, they basically tell you to not be there. You know, it won't be until. Dare I say it? Some like wearing jogger in Vancouver gets mowed down by a grizzly. That they'll be like, "Shit, there's too many grizzlies." Um, yeah, yeah. But that, that's that's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, now um, I jokingly commented on a common guest, Justin Peter, who's absolute legend. He had something yeah. the other day about oh, I don't know what it was. It was too many animals in UK anyway. And I was sort of jokingly put that the um, the wolves and the bears that they're going to introduce to the UK will fix that oh, until they kill, kill somebody in the neighbourhoods. So there will be a bit more than foxes in your rubbish bins if they do that, that's for sure. Yeah, such a dumb idea, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, on that word management, you're doing an awesome job of um, introducing the, the country or at least the hunting public to people that are striving for some sort of management. And, and mm-hmm. before I had that uh, emergency with my daughter, I was reading – the latest from the Secret Foundation and, yep. and all the all the good work that they're doing. Um, do you think that that's where the Scottish perspective is going to really help um, us understand how we look after some species without much natural you know, uh, control? Now, this is a big topic, man, um, <laughs> because I've sort of got my own theories on a few of these things. Um, like... Yes, you're like you're right, but but for me, I think um, probably one of the bigger mind shifts we need to get our head around. I'm smirking internally because I know Matthew's going, "Don't go there, Karen," and I'm going, "Oh, we can go there." Um, I feel like we as hunters need in New Zealand actually need to figure out what it is we're trying to defend because our wording is hunting but our definition is killing a lot of deer or pigs or tar and you know necessity in other countries would mean that it isn't that so when we want to defend hunting and we sort of say that it's not fair that they're culling tar or they're using 1080 or their waros in there has it actually diminished our hunting like i get that not being successful in every hunt is a diminished experience, but only compared to what our comparative is. Like we can still put on our boots, we can still we still live in a country where we can hunt 
vast majority of the country. We can still go and do overnight experiences. We can still be successful, but we, we that's not our version of hunting. Our version of hunting has always been successful, perhaps on multiple animals. Um, and, you know, and, and when we talk about, like, well, you know, Matthew, for example, uh, living in Canada, um, including our, our trip last year, um, and he did a he did a couple of mule deer hunts. He did a goat hunt, uh, a blacktail hunt, three weeks with me. You know, so he probably spent six to eight weeks in the mountains hunting last year. Uh, didn't pull the trigger at all. Um, now I'm not. That's not a high horse thing, but that was still hunting, and and they they defend their right to do that way more passionately than we do. Like we. We're more worried that the deer are getting worried or, you know, and we definitely need some management around that so the animals don't demise. Because I fully understand that if the numbers were really deplenished, then the likelihood of new hunters taking up the sport would diminish too, and that's not good for hunting. Like, I understand all that. I'm not, it's definitely not a black and white picture for me, but I think, I think one of the things we need to get our head around is, as New Zealand hunters is is essentially that are we defending the fact that we still want to be hunting and we want to be able to share hunting with our children or are we defending the fact that we want to be able to go out and see 20 deer and shoot four for the day because maybe we've got to find somewhere in between yeah now here's one for you this, this happened to me today and, and I wasn't actually happy with my response the, um, <laughs> you never are when you're caught in the moment it's never what you sit there like oh well I do anyway I sit there and go like if anybody asks me this I'm going to nail it and then it happens, it's like, damn it, that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, was, that was one of these. Uh, they're uh, lovely older ladies. You know, she was, I don't know what I, how I got to the point of telling about, I was going to the park and, and see various things. And she said, what are you doing there? I go, hunting. And she said, oh, oh, you can't kill things. And I said, well, other things do. Yep. And, then she, and then she said, oh, but if, if none of us killed anything, if, and if we got rid of guns, then there'd be no killing. And I was just basically... Didn't, didn't have anything more to say because I was like, man, this is a can of worms. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I said, but they're pests. And I was just like, then I thought, oh, that's the wrong freaking answer. Yeah, 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 <laughs> it is the wrong answer. Exactly. But I don't know. As hunters, we all get put in that, in that predicament where we come up with something. Um, and, we're, and, it's, and it's like, it's always ego-based. We're always trying to defend ourselves. Um, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's just part of it. That, that's the way we're, we're underwritten, I think. But... Um, it is a hard one. I have it quite a lot. Like especially when we when you start talking, um, like it's it's one thing to validate hunting, shooting a deer, bringing it home, and and, and eating it, sharing it with your family. But then it's a different to, and, and it shouldn't be any different. But it's a different argument than when they're trying to justify why somebody's paid so much to shoot said animal, and you know, like there's. They, they come from very different directions. Yeah, and, and uh, it immediately, when you think, think about it post-dog, it's like their association is hunting is killing, yeah. killing is with guns, and so guns are all bad, so hunting's bad. Yeah, you know, yeah. These are just a straight derivative from Bambi, though. Like that's, <laughs> that's where they sort of learnt their education <laughs> on that sort of stuff. And that's, that's, that there and lies part of the big problem. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, but we've, we've I mean, that's... That, that harping right back to it, like that's that's the unfortunate 
reality or the understanding of a lot of people, you know, like we are a minority and that's why I and, and we as the Educator 100 or the Ultimate ON that feel like we need to be doing, we need to be leading the internal change versus it being reactive, I think. Because yeah. we're, we're one of the few countries that still have that ability. Like when you talk about Canada, when you talk about Scotland, like that decision's already made. They're already flat tack minorities, and they're they're basically just doing all they can to tread water. You know, where yes. at least, and I, you know, I've talked about this before. Like at least we still live in a society. The fact, even though it's changing a lot, somebody within our family or or, or close knit community, we know and understand as hunters and gatherers. So we still have that small association. When when that's another generation away, and and like it's hard for me to imagine, but when you know nothing of hunting, nothing of camping, nothing of the outdoors, and you see a staff article or a social media post saying that the hunters are upset because now they're trying to take their bolt actions off them, they're like, well, I don't give a shit. I don't even have a bolt action. And that's, that's <laughs> where the trouble lies. So we need to be doing all we can to, in my thinking, um, encourage new people into the sport, but also share the positive messages about what we do, you know, and, and try as yeah. best we can educate. Um, but you can't educate when they don't want to be educated either, so it's tough. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about this old lady is her son is under. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. No. Um, and, and, and I heard um, Greg Kogu talking on, on a, you know, a third hunting podcast from Australia Hunting Arena the other day, and, mm-hmm. and he, was, he was basically saying that to – it's so hard to describe it. You know, he's a pretty spiritual guy as it is, but when yeah. he was talking about hunting, he, he was sort of um, waxing lyrically about, about it in the same way that, you know, it's a spiritual experience. And I'm partway through him and Matt Winter's book at the moment and yeah. the tales that they talk about are just fantastic. But I guess that's why um, when it comes to hunting, there's, you know, podcasts that last for three hours or, or yeah. there's, or there's um, you know, magazines and books and, and um, you know, and, yeah. and Cam Henderson on it, and he's yeah. I'm going to take I'm going to take credit for it actually because I said to him we should have a film um, show in New Zealand. And sure enough, he's running with it. Yeah. Um, you know, we have we have hunting films, and and you know, as I said to him, you know, as someone that lives in the city and doesn't run out in the back of the farm and mm-hmm. and get some meat for the freezer, I, I happily sit there and watch 20, 30, or in the case of Paul Michael's two hour long um, <laughs> um, hunting show. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, okay, we're, we are a um, passionate bunch. <laughs> um, and I think the reason, and we, not enough people sort of touch on it, but the reason we, I think we kind of struggle with defending, and I don't, I don't well, where am I going with that? We don't struggle to defend, but I think at the very bottom of it all, we all have that internal feeling that we are actually still killing something. So, Despite all our justification and reasoning, we still do find that little bit inside of us that's like, ooh, I get why that's an issue. You know, like I'm not a malice killer. Like I don't – that part doesn't overly excite me. It's not all high fives because of what we've done. It's it's about everything that led up to that or the challenges that have failed on other hunts. Like there's a whole lot of emotional stuff, like you say, that builds a hunt story. But when we get into that – not necessarily an argument, but a, a conversation and hopefully a constructive conversation. 
at the very bottom of it, we still are identifying the fact that we killed something that wasn't going to be killed without us. Like, yes. That's a simple factor. You know? So, I don't know. I think that's why we're sort of, for me, and it's an analogy used in other things, but it's a little bit like we're driving flat tack with the handbrake on because we know when we get to the very bottom of the picture, it's not actually what we want everyone to hear. <laughs> so we've got all this descriptive, but it's like, ah, yeah, I did just shoot it in the end. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mate, um, how are you going with that bow? You're speaking of all, all the time uh, yep. practicing. Uh, yep. How are you doing there? Um, yep, so I now have uh, a couple of goats to the to the bow. Um, I, I don't know if it's actually shifted my mindset from it, to be fair. Um like my biggest, I think my biggest headache in it was, I I wanted to get a bow because I wanted to to find challenges in animals that I probably lost excitement in because I I sort of felt internally that I in some form was a little bit on my high horse that it was only deer and pigs or tar and chamois like the rabbits weren't now longer an interest of mine or the goats were done through necessity not not through hunt desire. And I wanted to get that back. So then I, my wife brought me the bow, which was a nice present. Um, and I started target shooting. And then, and again, it was probably a little bit ego-based. Um, I wasn't as good as I was with a rifle. So then, then internally, my, my dilemma came about with the fact that over my history of hunting and, and different experiences around the world and what have you, and then what I try and educate on people was all about ethics and humanity and, and trying to bring that to what it is what you do as hunters. And my big dilemma was, well, am I following that because I'm now doing something with less skill set, with more primitive weapon, uh, more bigger error rate or percentage you know, possibility rate, and I, I get, don't don't get me wrong, that I, I understand that the really good guys are probably at the same percentage as I am with a rifle. Like, I get that. But I myself wasn't there. And essentially just, I think I just got myself in an internal knot around that and basically got fearful of wounding an animal with the bow and just regretting the whole process. Like that, you know, that's where it got to my, in my head and that's, that's just a current thing. I overthink a lot of things, but um, so basically, it just took me. Well, it took me a year to shoot an animal with it. Um, they've both been good kills. I still don't like the fact that they don't fall over, uh, and that's something um, you know, like as I, I rightly or wrongly, I I basically shoot my rifle to the base of the neck like they and I know there's I get I don't people that are listening don't preach at me I do understand that that can still go wrong but essentially the outcome I get is either fall over or they don't and I'm I, I'm happy with that um, and then the bow isn't that and like I understand you know my wife's a vet like you know we talk about we talk about the death of animals and all that like we've had pretty big lengthy conversations on how that actually works in terms of anatomy, not just what I've read in hunting magazines. Um, so it was, 
it was a lot, and I've I've done it. I've shot a couple of goats, and then, like I say, they were successful shots. And then I don't know. I've actually now I've gone flip side on that. And I'm like, well, what made it all right for me to shoot those goats? Like, were they any less valuable to me or anyone else? And I don't know. Like, I still I've still got some good friends. Khan being one, um, he keeps pesting me. He wants me to take you know go out on a bow hunt and. Get 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 this off my shoulder. Um, so I still I still have a goal that I would like to shoot a red stag with it. This raw with it. Um, whether that transpires, I don't know. I might just get sick of carrying it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely feel what you say about the margin of error. All of a sudden, like mm. um, I've I've got uh, you know the whisker biscuit, and, and some of my components aren't great. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah. Um, just think, no way right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's no, a tough I think, one. I think, I think it just sits internally with yourself. quite rudimentary as well. Yeah. Like, it's like, the bullet, it's it's kind of an easy understanding. Like, fast-moving projectile comes out of there, you, you line it up, and it should go there. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is like, I guess there is some similarities in the way mm-hmm. the way you shoot it, but as you say, the margin of mirror is larger. Yeah, that, yeah. that small movement makes a big difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. and even and just your because, external because of the speed and the lack of ballistics. Yeah, 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 and your external factors <laughs> like your like your your winds and your your small bits of scrub or bush that you know you don't visually see because of what you're doing at the time, and you know there's a lot going on. Like, and for me. It's even the fact that, you know, and I've guided clients that are bow hunters, you know, and like it's the, the animal, because of the time delay and what's happening, like the animals can take half a step and that matters a lot, you know. It does not so much with the rifle, but with the bow it does. And so I think it's just an internal thing that, you know, like I think an, an 18-year-old current wouldn't certainly be holding back like this. Like he'd have probably a fairly large story to tell you right now but unfortunately I, I don't I've got a target has got a heap of holes in it really um, yeah. but but yeah it's something it's something that I will get around like there's there's aspects that I like because I do see I do see potentially in the future like um, probably more interest in photography of these sort of species and stuff so the skill set learnt through bow hunting would bring me closer in line with that as well, um, or the type of photography I'd like to do. You know, you can take good photos with the iPhone and spotting scope, but it's not, that's not what I'd like. I don't, you still don't get the emotion of the animal when you're that far away. So, um, so yeah, it's sort of a, just a long-winded three-step process for Curran's future, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, so, <clears throat> you, know, you bring up the roar, and there's a fantastic head and behind there with an imperial on it you know mm-hmm. do you think do you think that the narrative behind something like that is really what makes you know um canary and, and central otago hunting just why, why it's sort of our, our mecca <laughs> uh yeah definitely if you want like if that's what drives you you know what i mean like i definitely i definitely don't hold prejudice against those that aren't driven that way you know, um, but if if shape and dimensions is a driver for you, then yeah, like where the tradition sits, that's where they sit. You know, like uh, and for me, it's always the target head 
it's always been a thing for me, you know, like, and I've, when I look back at my videos and photography over, over the years, like, I've let some amazing stags go because they just didn't look right. And if you were, if you were just a point guy or just a size guy, like, you'd be kicking me for sure. Um I don't know. It's a, it's about pretty. Like that one's on the wall, but it's not a mount. Like I mount all my trophies, um, so that's not there for me yet. I still would like better than that. Um, is that because of the bays? Or, or uh, we've got one broken bay. So, but he's um, yeah. I probably i I probably would have liked to just from him to be a bit older. Um, <laughs> that's what gets me on that one. Um, so. And unfortunately, probably people have probably picked up on this podcast. Now that I've made that decision, that's where it sits. So he won't ever be a mount. Um, and do you think that's quite good having that as a, as a reminder? Like you know, to, to every time you go out the out of the door, out of your garage, you go right. So that's that's my standard. That's that's when I, when I come home to that, that's how I feel about the animal yeah. that I talk. About. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's so, different. There's um. And that, that's part of, you know, like, as I, uh, we've touched on it already, but going back to it, like, the hunt in Canada last year, like, a stone sheep for me is, I don't know, there's nothing else that would compare for me, for my for my hunting accolade or internal accolade, like, a stone sheep is, is everything for me. And we, for the rams we saw, we saw one that, you know, for those that have guided sheep and that, they'll know what I'm saying, but... You could have made it legal, like it was on that fringe. Like typically, if, if it's not legal and you look at it straight off the bat, then it's not legal. That's just the unwritten code. Um, and we probably could have made it legal, but I, there's no way I would have wanted to look at that on my wall. There's, I just wouldn't have wanted to spend the rest of my life looking at it going, it's just legal. Like when you look around at my mounts on my walls, I've shot or turned down bigger than some of the mounts on my walls in different species, but... They're all older, and they've all probably like some of my deer species. They're typically going back a year, like so they've peaked and gone back a year. So they tend to have a little bit of fugly with them. But to me, that's a little bit of internal pride in the fact that one they were out there, you know, evading others, and um, you know, I still got them when they're a magnificent animal. But I let them be as good as they could have been first, sort of thing. So that's that's me. Yeah, and, and on that, the, the, the concept of switch, is it just the fact that they've got all the gear down low and straight up, or is that because they're going down back? No, so that's their terminology. So most of the most of the switches are age-related. Um, there's not many that are genetic-related. Uh, there is some, like so it's definitely not a blanket rule, but typically their older stag's gone backwards because um, they, won't, they won't harvest – good genetic stags on the estate. They they see the value in seeing them alive. So the clients aren't even interested in them. So they're they're royals, twelves, fourteens, like they're they will be left on the hill. Um, and they'll always be shooting declining stags, uneven stags. And a switch is what they call the 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 true trophy on the estate because they kill a lot of stags. So when they fight, they don't have the ability to interlock antlers, so they tend to stab Good stags. So they're basically seen as the, the alpha predator, if you like, amongst the stags. So that's why they are 
highly regarded amongst the gillies and the, and the stalkers themselves, but also the clients. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, so, and so what are they sort of, you know, going into the nitty-gritty of it, what's their sort of pricing structure? Do they do they sell the hunt over there? Or? Yeah, no, they're not. They're not, a, they're not um, expensive hunts because they sell the hunt. It's not like here where we talk about selling a trophy stag. So you might hunt stags for one day for 500 pounds type thing. Like, so it's not, it's not an excessively expensive, like, it's more that just that people don't do it over there. Like, you know, it's not, it's certainly not, it's not, and it's perceived as the, an expensive outing for the gentleman. That's how hunting's perceived. Like, you pay more to do birds and stuff like that, um, depending on different estates and so forth. But they're not, re- birds aren't really my speciality, though. Me and shotguns parted ways a wee while ago. <laughs> for, the, for the right reasons. Yeah, mate. It's a our, our concept in design, of course. We we've got our historical herd or herds or, or mm-hmm. um, things that were introduced, and and we're talking about the Imperials and the Otago and Maguire and that sort of stuff. Um, and then our, our perception of, of gigantic red, you know, yep. the, people say, from the state say to me, "Oh, do you hunt red stag?" I'm like, "Well, well, yeah, of course I do." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but it's like there's the red stag and there's what they think red stag is. Do yeah. you think that again this this conjecture of DIY and conjecture of coming here and doing it for, for free and, and yeah. learning the knowledge off the locals and, and don't worry about it? Or I see there's um, some sort of export tax system. Yeah, yeah, game and all councils generated. Yeah, but do you think that the fact that it's being broadcast as a true true natured um, animals is gonna Sort of, um, I don't know. Might might hinder that idea. That, or, or do you think it, it's going to be about the adventure? The person that comes to DIY um, is coming for the adventure. Oh, they're definitely coming for the adventure, and there is there is an ever growing understanding that, and this is neither here nor there for those involved in the industry. Like, there is a growing understanding that a true wild. Un, you know, with nothing gained in human interaction, a true wild stag is not like what they see in the brochures. There, there is a growing understanding on that. So, um, and then you know, for the for the purists, they can look back in the history and see what were great stags and what are great stags. Uh, and so, therefore, you you start to see the real difference. Um, I think I think my interpretation of it is. Is the essentially the, the high fence enhanced in some form, be it breeding or, or um, supplementation or what have you, for any reason? Stag still has a, a perfectly good market. You know, like there's still a hunter that needs to come on a short time frame or is driven by exceptional sizes or exceptional lengths. Like every hunter has their own ambition, um, and. It, what we need to understand as hunters is it might not always be the same as ours. So that that's fine. And then there's the the genuine free-range guys, you know, and the unfortunate reality is why there's not more of that. It's just it's hard to compete financially against the the park there. Um, you know, the, the facilities are better, the, the costs are about the same. But, you know, when you're... If you were going to spend the same money on a Mini or a Ferrari, in their eyes, you know, where would you put your money? Like, it's, I'm not, 
and that's not my version, but it's you know that's kind of where we're at. So, well, there's a couple of guys that are are doing really well in the free range stag market. Um, Chris McCarthy's one. Um, he his podcast will be coming out soon with us. Um, like he's he's really doing something quite special for free range red stag hunting. Um, you know, and he's doing some little bits that. You know, essentially, when when you know, as a, as a business owner or whatever you want to decipher yourself as, you're like when you start doing extra bits, they just they're a straight cost. You know, he doesn't gain much from them. So, but he's recreated like his, you know, the Otago Heads book, you know, for his clients, yeah. and which is, you know, that's that's a really cool, unique difference for him. You know, and he's his his wording is shifting to, to using tags. So he's got ten tags for these stacks to shoot a year. He's not. It's not unlimited. It's not. Um, he's not going to get more in for the sake of it. Like that's what he does. Um, you know, like little things like that are really starting to uh, shift. And then, you know, last year was the first year he did SCI, which is um, you know most of the people will know, but it's you know the big conference where hunts are sold internationally. And he was sort of the small fish in a big pond, really. Like you know, there was other people who were using wording around free-range tags, but not offering genuine free-range tags where he was. And, you know, and then, you know, true form and, and, and you know, credit to him, um, he was back there this year and did more shows. Um, you know, so there is a shift. It just It's just going to take some people to want to do it. Um, and then I think if somewhere, somewhere we can find a, a, a management and a – perhaps a tag or what, however we word it and go down, but some sort of structure that means those doing DIY hunts have some sort of formality or some requirement to be with somebody, then then there could be a reinsurgence in free-range tag, you know, as a guided option, um, which would be quite cool. Um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's something there. I think it's good that, you know, a few of these guys are really – doing what they can to bring it back. You know, Ben Tumata's another one. You know, he, he shoots some exceptional stags, um, you know, all genuine free range. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely out there. Yeah, and from from my perspective, someone who's got, you know, a massive love or, or romanticise the, the deer wars and then, you know, massive passion for the deer industry as well as hunting, you know, well, I can see all the value in it and... and Another guy from you guys, Ollie Cubby Walker, as well. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. doing down the coast is yeah. just pretty, pretty bloody cool. And yeah, um, you know, had a few chats with TJ from Media Noah as well. Yeah. I think you know what what he's doing is yeah, you know, best best of luck to him. I think I think it's pretty cool. Um, mm. and, and it's you know, it's 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 been like you guys finding finding a position in a market and and hopefully it, it pays off for them. It's, yeah, it's yeah, certainly. <laughs> I actually sat. Sat beside a guy flying from Vancouver to Whitehorse uh, last year, and um, as you do, they pick up on the accent pretty quickly. And you know, he the, the only thing he wanted to know was why we bother having fences behind these big stags. He's like, You got no predators, like, what are the fences for? Like, he, he saw right through it, you know, and he's like, well, Why are they even in there? They don't even look like your proper stags, you know. And that, that was through no prompt of mine, like, it's sort of my unwritten rule that when I'm 
I guess, in the hunting industry that I'm also in part repping New Zealand. So um, it's silly of me to to sway one way or the other, you know, like I've got my own internal beliefs, but um, it's not right for me to talk negatively of any descriptive or, you know, direction of the, of the industry. Um, we, we need every single one that's sitting in that industry at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think that's where, um, you know, and we face this with, with an optometry, like we're an independent practice, there's, there's groups, there's Specsavers, there's OPCM, you know, mm. it's like, who's who's your market? And that guy's not the fence market, but, yeah. you know, the likes of Joseph or, or Chris or Ben, it's probably his market. Yeah, yeah exactly, 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 yeah. And there's, yeah. they're out there, um, you know, and when you, when you put comparatives on, like, you know, like, so the the guys that, because um, my last few seasons in Canada was, was more backpack sheep hunting, um, and so they're a younger demographic, so all of a sudden you've got guys in their, more so 30s, but 30s and 40s that are capable of backpacking, capable of walking, capable of carrying their own gear, and they're spending $50,000 on a sheep hunt, but, but they understand... They understand the value of that trophy. They understand the reality of that trophy. They understand the the genuine work that goes into that trophy. So that that to me is the genuine free range stag market, you know. And if if somewhere along the line those dots can line up for the guys that dig their toes in and stick at it, it could be financial for them, you know. And I hope yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, I guess that was sort of the value of having Brian call on. Like, say what you will about. You know his relationships and, and the fact that he'd been to Kadrona before, but uh, yeah. that that was what you just said there is exactly what he was getting at. Is that you know for me to go and go on this adventure and, and do a sheep hunt, which would be an absolute dream, and, but have to drop fifty k, yeah, or come to New Zealand, go free range, go into the mountains and and pick up, well, I think there's four four tar and a, and a chamois, like yeah, you know, yeah, 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 he's been he's been you know, a third of the money. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, yeah. it's one of those internal battles, you know. Like it's sort of, I sort of sit as much as I understand business and I understand the need for it. And like I say, we need every we need every part of that puzzle to be there. Um, you know, it's sort of I, I, I internally I don't like when they go. Oh, we went to New Zealand because it was cheaper. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like. Like, had you just said you really wanted to shoot a tar, they would have just sat with me okay. Um, you know, like, so I do have a wee bit of an internal thing on that, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a bit of a um, hindsight or a turn back the clock, but I think if, if as an industry, New Zealand as a whole could have done it again, we should have been more around the quality in return for financial versus the quantity for return of financials. Like, um, you know, and I get, you know, like these big outfits, man, they've pumped the animals through and, um, you know, like, and, but they have to. They've got massive overheads now. Like, that's it's a, it comes down to a business decision. Um, especially, especially when they go drop 355K on a stand. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah. No, it's it, like I get it, I get it, but I, um, yeah, I guess I think I think in hindsight it would have been good, better to have done it the other way around. Yeah, so. no, and I, I guess that was my other purpose of, of talking to Brian was that the it sort of 
brings up those questions of like, what do we value and, and do we value our resource and yeah. how do we place value on it? And, and like you guys reiterate many times, if we value it, well, then we should probably pay something or, yeah. or somehow. Yeah. yeah, 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 no, definitely. Yeah. Um, we're, we're pretty, well, the, the trouble is we think everything is ours for one. Yeah. Like we get super, <laughs> super pissed off if anybody shoots anything anywhere, regardless of whether we were likely to be there or not. Um, and we sort of want a lot without giving a lot, really. Uh, you know, and that, that got heightened when the TAR Foundation quickly had to rally together and and set about raising some money. Like, that was the first time I think the Hunt Public in New Zealand really united. Um, and we it was through necessity. It was not, you know, had we just started that on the goodwill, I don't think it would have gone anywhere near like it did. Um, we were we were really sort of it was more a reaction to being pushed into a corner that we weren't happy with. Um, but we it was the first time we really got together, and I think that um, maybe that was a start point for us understanding that we need to pay or be become something that contributes a bit more than what we have been doing. Yeah, absolutely, mate. This has been wicked, and I hope you uh, do pip out, Matt, because that'd be. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you should have probably raised it because if he hears this, well, when he hears this, it's just going to be an internal battle for us now. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Nothing like friendly competition, as you said, with your uh, social media group for your um, ultimate OE. Yeah, so exactly. Who's better at what, and it pushes the others off. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Mate, so so you're um, just an outdoors guy on Instagram, your favourite place. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ultimate OE's Facebook. Yeah, so yeah, ultimate OE hunting on Facebook, um, the educator hunter on Facebook, just an outdoors door guy on Instagram, um, are we hunting on Instagram. Um, yeah, and then we've, yeah, and we've got this new thing coming up next year, so stay tuned for that one. It'll be, it'll be cool. We'll get to say the easy place to find um, Karen is just in the show notes. Yeah. Mate, uh, <laughs> I usually get people to leave us with something. What's what's a thing that keeps showing up in your life or, or doesn't do you wrong that you, that you sort of, you know, keep thinking about or even just quite your life or something like that. Um, okay, here's one without sounding super emotional. Um, what what we as guys need to do, and this is going to come way out of left field, you're going to like, what the fuck, Karen? Um, <laughs> we as guys in relationships need to figure out the love language of our partner. Otherwise, we're just wasting our time. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a big one. They're, they're a simple online test if, if you're looking for it. Maybe yeah. I'll put that in the show notes too. Maybe. Or the um, the book I go to is the I've read is The Love Languages by um, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, I think it is. Don't quote yeah. exactly that, but I think it's that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, whew, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game changer. <laughs> when, when, as a typical male, you start thinking about the other half, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> been having that conversation lately. Yeah, my, uh, sister, with my sister-in-law, she's like, "What is that?" And I was like, "Oh, it's just like things that you appreciate and that you do and think that people appreciate." It. And she's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, like doing the dishes." I was like, "Oh yeah, you're an access service type person." Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, no, no, awesome, man. That, that's that is a left fielder to leave us with. Awesome. Like, yeah. <laughs> no worries at all. Thanks for the Cheers, chat. Man, it was good. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll press stop. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.